Thanks, Michael. Well, if you have your Bible, please do open up to Galatians chapter 3. It'll be really helpful for you to have that open in front of you as we work down through it this morning. I want to begin by asking a series of questions about God's blessing. How can we know that we are living with God's smile upon us rather than his frown? How can we know that we are living under God's blessing and not under his displeasure? How can we know that when we come to pray, there's not tension in the air between us and God because of a relationship that's not quite right? How can we know that in the end, when we stand before God, he will accept us into heaven and not reject us and cast us away? I wonder how many people out there in our city having no interest in church would answer those questions this morning. I think many would say something like, well, I don't know if we can ever really know, but all we can do is try to do our best in life. Try to be good people. Try not to do any harm. Try to do more good than bad. I think many out there would reason things in their own mind, saying, I don't think I'm a very bad person. I don't wish anyone ill. So hopefully, God's happy enough with me, and I'm among those who are hashtag blessed, to use the social media tagline or whatever you call it. By nature, many people open to the possibility of there being a God, hold to what we could call a vague and unthought-through gospel of works. That is, however it may be phrased, their system holds that if they do more good than bad, whatever that means and however they measure that, then everything between them and God's probably okay. Well, right at the outset of this message, if you're thinking in that way in here, let me be really clear. The Bible does not teach that. In fact, that's pretty much the direct opposite of what the Bible teaches. The message of the Bible as a whole and the message of the passage we come to this morning specifically teaches that every one of us in here and out there this morning, every one of us have sinned and fallen short of God's standard of righteousness, rightness. Our sin is very serious, in fact, so serious that it fractures, breaks our relationship with God. It brings us into a place where we are under God's displeasure, or to use Paul's language in our passage in verses 10 to 14, our sin brings us under God's curse. By nature, all is not okay between us and God. By nature, because of our sin, God is angry with us. And our good deeds, whatever shape they take, will not change this position we are in. Our finite little good deeds will not solve the problem of our infinite offenses against an infinitely holy God. Good works are not the currency that gets you right with God. The only way that situation can be changed, where we are moved from under God's displeasure, under God's curse, to a place where we are under his smile, the only way that can be changed is if God does something about our sin problem. And the good news of the Bible is that this is exactly what God has done by sending his son 
into the world. On the cross, Jesus paid the debt for our wrongs. He bore God's curse in our place so that we could know God's blessing. He's done all that is needed to transfer us out from under this place where we are under God's displeasure to a place where we are under God's blessing. We can know we are blessed by God. We are living life under his smile and his pleasure, not by trying to do more good than bad, but by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is the only way, the only way to know you are under God's blessing and not under God's curse. Now, this is the message that the Apostle Paul preached to the Galatians during his first missionary journey recorded for us in Acts 13 and 14. This was an area in modern-day central Turkey. As Paul preached that message, many of the Galatian people received the message joyfully. They experienced new life in Christ they were living in the goodness of God's blessing. They were gathered into local churches, elders were established, and these gatherings of Galatians started to praise the Lord and enjoy his blessing in Christ. They were set free from thinking that they had to earn their way into God's good books and never knowing if they had done enough to knowing in Christ God was smiling down on them because Christ had done enough. And by accepting Christ, all was well. Well, shortly after that church became established in Galatia, the Apostle Paul moved on to continue to preach the gospel and plant other churches. And following in, hot on the heels of the Apostle Paul, came another group called the Judaizers. And they came... And they convinced the Galatians in that little local church that their faith in Jesus alone was not enough to bring them under God's blessing. They had to add to the work that Jesus had done through his death a certain number of good religious works that would demonstrate their religious devotion and whenever they trusted in Jesus and then added enough works, then they would know that they are living life under God's blessing and not under his curse. Paul got wind of this. He heard that this was deeply disturbing the believers at Galatia. He heard that this was taking them away from the freedom that they were enjoying, living under God's blessing by trusting in Christ alone. And so he writes this letter to call the Galatians back to Christ alone, to the freedom that they could enjoy knowing that they were living under God's blessing by trusting in Christ. He writes this letter to build an argument, saying Christ alone is all you need to be right with God, to know his blessing. And in the first two chapters that we've studied so far, we've seen the Apostle Paul arguing from the evidence of his own experience, his testimony, his personal story. He's been sharing how he was transformed by the gospel, the good news that Christ alone is enough to make us right with God. He's been sharing how he met with Christ on the Damascus Road and was totally transformed from thinking like the Judaizers that you had to trust in loads of religious works to the point where he realized that Christ alone is enough. And he's been sharing how he came to Jerusalem and explained that gospel and the apostles added nothing to it and they said, yes, this is the gospel. Well, now as we turn into chapter 3, the Apostle Paul continues to build his argument that Christ alone is enough to save us, to make us right with God. And he turns now from looking at the evidence from his own testimony to three new strands of evidence that bear witness to the fact that blessing and peace with God comes not by doing good works, but by trusting in Jesus. And we're going to just look at these three strands of evidence that he gives one in turn. The first strand of evidence comes in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Paul essentially turns and says to the Galatians, look, you consider the evidence from your own experience with the gospel. 
Look down at chapter 3, verse 1. You see Paul's exasperation is evident at the beginning of our passage as he addresses the Galatians directly and just says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, last time in Galatians 2.20, Easter Sunday, we saw the Apostle Paul explaining there that when someone comes to Christ and is united to him by faith, there's the death of the old sinful self, and the new self is born in us as the Holy Spirit comes to fill us and bring the saving life of Christ into our souls. This is how we're brought into a right relationship with God. Paul's saying here in chapter 3, verse 1, You Galatians, you heard this. You came to see Christ crucified. That's all you need. You came to understand that that is what makes you right with God, trusting in the finished work of Christ. You experienced the power of the Holy Spirit as you trusted in Christ. Why now are you going back to trying to earn your way to God on the basis of good works? Verse 2, let me ask you only this, Paul says. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, we've already acknowledged that that phrase, works of the law, is essentially Paul's way of saying, look, do you think by doing really good things, by trying to be really good, that that can get you into God's good books? Do you think you can earn favor with God? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, by trying to be really good, really obedient, read your Bible loads, pray loads, give loads of money to church, go to church every single meeting? Did you really receive the Spirit by doing good works or by, look at this expression, hearing with faith? Hearing with faith. Hearing the message of Christ crucified, the Spirit working in you, where you see the glory and beauty and sufficiency of Christ and you say, yes, I want to receive that Christ as my Savior. Paul's asking the Galatians, look, think about your own experience. How did you receive the life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit? By trying really hard to obey the law or by hearing the message of the crucified Christ and receiving it by faith? Look at how he continues to pepper them with questions. Verse 3, he asks, are you foolishly thinking that you start this life by the power of the Spirit, but then it's up to you to keep it going and complete it all on your own effort and by your good works? Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain for the sake of Christ to throw it all away now and go back to earning your way by works? Verse 5, did God supply you with the Spirit and demonstrate his power by works of the law or hearing with Faith. Now, the point is really, really clear in this first section, as Paul calls the Galatians to reflect on their own experience with the gospel. Paul is saying, Galatians, look, you received the Spirit, power, new life, not by works of the law, not by trying really hard to be good. You received the Spirit, salvation, life transformation, by hearing with faith the message of Christ crucified. You were saved not by trying to be really good. You were saved by the power of the Holy Spirit coming into your life. Now, let's just make a couple of observations of this first strand of evidence that Paul presents to the Galatians. Did you notice the amount of language here in this first five verses about the Holy Spirit? It's fascinating. Verse 2, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing by faith? Verse 3, are you foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? The result of believing in Christ savingly is receiving the Holy Spirit. Paul can speak of being justified by faith in Christ, that is, being made right with God by faith in Christ, and receiving the Spirit through faith in Christ, almost as if they they mean the same thing. You're justified, made right with God through faith in Christ. 
You receive the Spirit through faith in Christ. See the way Paul says being made right with God is when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and brings transformation. For Paul, the substance of living under God's blessing is having the Holy Spirit coming into your life and bringing the presence of God right into your deepest being. Notice that this language of being made right with God by faith in Christ is so closely connected to receiving the Spirit through faith in Christ. The blessing, the substance of gospel blessing is having the Holy Spirit come to live within you. We thought about that last week. But let's just make a second observation and then we'll apply this before we move on to the next point. Second observation here in these verses is that we we don't ever move away. Paul teaches that we don't ever move away from relating to God on the the basis of the finished work of Christ. Another way to say that is we, we don't start our Christian journey by being saved by grace through faith alone and then live our lives as if everything's to do with us. It's very easy to know that we are saved by grace and then to live as if we relate to God on the basis of works. It is very easy to do that for even the most mature Christian. You start to think, yep, I'm saved by grace through faith. God accepts me. He's bound to accept me on that. But then when I look at my rubbish Christian life, I struggle to even think that God even likes me. And in your mind, as I've said before, you can carry this low-level guilt. You come to pray and you really struggle because you feel so bad about yourself. And it's as if, though you know you're saved by grace, it's as if you relate to God on the basis of works. It's very easy to get into that habit of thinking that way. Well, Paul asks the Galatians, very, very clearly in verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now thinking you're being perfected by the flesh? He's saying, Galatians, look, you don't start with the Spirit. And then live your Christian life as if it's all down to you and your own strength growing. No, you never move on from trusting in the work of God within you to save you and transform you. We are not just saved by grace. We are sanctified by grace. And this is really important to get this balance right. So it's, it's up to us, yes, to open our Bible and read it, up to us to try and discipline ourselves, to pray. It's up to us to try and be disciplined, try to walk with God. We do have a responsibility, yes. Yet, if we live as if our growth is all down to us, that will crush us. What we need to do is recognize that we have a responsibility, but what we need to continually do is look away from ourselves and say, Lord, work out all the implications of the gospel in my life by the power of the Spirit. Make me want to walk with you by the Holy Spirit changing my affections. Make me want to read my Bible. Make me hungry and thirsty for you, God. By myself, I'll always drift. So Lord, you keep breathing on the embers of my half-heartedness. Keep breathing new life. Do you pray like that? Or do you just settle with mediocrity and a distance-based relationship with God? We cry out to the Lord, you've saved me by grace, now keep me by grace, grow me by grace, transform me by grace. I'm not putting my hope for growth in my effort ultimately, I'm putting my hope for growth in your promise to grow me and keep me in Christ. You don't start with the Spirit and then live your life as if it's down to you and your works and your willpower. We have a responsibility, yes, but we always surrender and say, Lord, apart from you and your work in my life, I can do nothing. We balance responsibility that we have with our deep need of God to sanctify us. So, Before we move on here from this little piece where Paul builds his argument, Christ alone is enough, Galatians, think back on your own experience. 
Let's just think back on our own experience. As Paul asks the Galatians, where did your works get you? And his answer is, nowhere. We have to ask ourselves, imagine if it was down to us and our effort. Imagine it was down to you. Have you prayed enough? Have you read your Bible enough? Have you shared your go- the gospel enough? Have you given enough money? Let's run a video recorder over your past week. Let's look at all your thoughts, all your words, everything you've done. Would it be good enough to get a holy, perfect God to accept you? Imagine it was down to you. Reflect on your own experience. Where has power come from in your life? From you being really, really good? Or from you renouncing your ability to get to God on your own merit and just falling completely on Christ? In Christ alone is all the power. Christ alone is the channel through which the Spirit brings all of the power of transformation into our lives. So are you trusting again in your own self-efforts or are you relating to God even subtly on the basis of your efforts or are you hoping entirely on the finished work of Christ? Ask yourself that this morning. Now here's a second strand or line of evidence that Paul confronts the Galatians with in verses 6 to 9. After he said, consider your own experience, now Paul says, consider the evidence from our father Abraham in the Old Testament, verses 6 to 9. Now, Paul turns and says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. His introduction of Abraham here is a bit of a master stroke in his argumentation. Paul's opponents the Judaizers who had come to Galatia, they were all looking to Moses as their teacher. But Paul goes back further and says, no, 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 let's, let's go beyond Moses. Let's consider the figurehead of our whole race, our father Abraham. And in Galatians uh, 3 verse 6, Paul quotes a passage from Genesis 15. Now that's the passage where if you were to read Galatians 15, you'd find Abraham deeply discouraged Because God had promised him blessing. He had promised him blessing in the form of a promised son. Abraham and his wife Sarah were not able to have children. But God said, when they were very old, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you with a son. And your son is going to be great. In fact, Through your seed, your offspring, I'm going to bless all nations. But Abraham in Genesis 15 is really discouraged because since God made that promise, some time has passed and the sign of the promise coming to pass is just nowhere. And so he's discouraged. And so God sees him in that state of discouragement on a beautiful, clear, starry night, invites Abraham to come outside, to look up at the stars and to count them if he's able to. And as Abraham looks at the stars and beholds the billions and billions and billions, the Lord just says to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And we read there in Genesis 15, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was given the promise of blessing through the promised son. It was publicly portrayed before him, kind of like Paul had clearly portrayed promised blessing through the promised son to the Galatians. Abraham believed God's promise of blessing through the promised son and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was counted righteous by faith. Faith in the promised son. 
counted in the right, declared not guilty, but in the right, all by faith in the promised son. So Paul takes Genesis 15 in this example of Abraham, and he holds it up to the Galatians and says, look, Abraham was a man of faith. He would agree with me. We are made righteous, that is, we are brought under God's blessing, under his smile, by faith in the promised son. Paul continues in verse 7 to explain that what matters most with respect to living under God's blessing is not physical descent from Abraham or the mark of circumcision to prove that you're descended from Abraham. What matters most with respect to living under God's blessing is spiritual descent. That is, sharing the same faith that Abraham had. And so Paul in verse 7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the true sons of Abraham. He continues in verse 8, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham's family is a family of faith in the promised son. How do you get into that family and experience the blessing promised to Abraham? Well, Paul argues in front of the Galatians, it's certainly not by works. It's by trusting in God's provision through the promised son. Abraham believed in God's provision of blessing through the promised son. We now believe in God's provision of blessing through the promised son. Isaac, the son who came eventually to Abraham and Sarah, did not fulfill and exhaust the promise of blessing through a promised son. That's what Paul's going to argue through the rest of Galatians 3 and 4. This promise of blessing through and provision through a promised son, Paul says, it pointed ultimately to Christ, the true seed of Abraham. How do you get into God's promised blessing? Not by physically getting into Abraham's family, by getting into Christ. And you have faith in the promised son. For Abraham, it was the promise of Isaac. He believed in what he knew at that time. Faith in the provision of God, blessing through this promised son. But we now know that the true promise was Christ. And that in Christ, we will be counted righteous and brought under the smile of God by faith in the promised son. Let's reflect on this for a moment. I remember the first time that I saw what was going on in this text and it clicked with me. I hope you've got it. I saw here for the first time years ago in a Presbyterian conference called Route 66, sort of cheesy name to say that over a certain number of years they were going to take you through all 66 books of the Bible, Route 66. And I remember sitting there in this little classroom with about 12 people and it was a, a, a Presbyterian minister who was just walking through Galatians. And I remember going through this passage and God just opening it up to me and the lights going on. You see, in my mind, I'd always sort of thought Old Testament saints were saved by obedience to the law. By, by hearing the law, trying to obey it, you tried to be really, really good and you'd get into God's good books. And clearly that didn't work out very well. So God reverted to plan B. Right, I'll get my son. He'll go and clean up the mess because clearly plan A hasn't worked. And for a long time, and I think subtly a lot of Christians think like this. We think all the Old Testament saints, they were supposed to try and obey the law. That failed, so God reverted to plan B. No longer saved by trying to be really good. I'll send my son so they can be saved by grace through faith. And I thought that way for a long time. 
And I remember reading this passage and having expounded and saying, oh my, it's not a plan A and a plan B. It's not Old Testament, New Testament, two different stories. It's one great story of God's plan A, making people right with himself through the promised son. Faith in God's provision through a promised son. What did God say to Adam and Eve after the fall? Genesis 3.15, there's a seed coming. And he's going to crush the serpent's head. All fallenness, all sin, all rebellion. He'll be struck as, as Christ was on the cross. But in that striking, he'll crush the serpent's head. Their hope was in the promised seed. And you go through all the books of the Old Testament, and it's all about where's the seed? God promises to Abraham, you're going to have seed, and through your seed, all nations will be blessed. And the whole thing's hanging on a knife edge as Abraham and Sarah can't get pregnant, and then he turns to Hagar and they have Ishmael, and then the whole thing hangs on a knife edge over and over again. You come to this powerful story in the Old Testament of wee King Joash and Queen Athaliah's killing off all the family of David, and there's this wee six-year-old boy that's been hidden by the priest in the temple, and the whole of redemptive history sitting on this one wee Davidic son. And yet he's preserved. And all through the Old Testament, the story of the promised seed. Is the seed coming? Is the seed coming? Where? God then says to King David, you're going to have seed. And your promised seed is going to have a kingdom that will never end. He will reign forever with great righteousness and blessing. And so the whole of the New Testament starts with, here's the book of beginnings. Just like Genesis. Here's the story of the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. The promised seed who's going to bring blessing on all nations. The promised king who's going to reign righteously forever. And the whole New Testament points to the fact that Christ is the long-awaited promised seed. And that by faith in God's provision of blessing through the promised son, that's how everyone across all of history has been saved. You are counted righteous brought under blessing, not on the basis of your works being really, really good, but by trusting in the provision that God has given, the promised son. And when I saw that, I remember just saying, yes! One story of salvation. And it just blew my mind. It blew my mind. Blessing consistently through the Bible, not on the basis of works, but by trusting in God's promised provision of a son. For the Old Testament saints, they trusted the promise and the light that they had. For us now, we know that it's trusting in Christ. That's how you're brought out from under God's curse to under God's blessing. So, that's our second line of evidence. Consider the evidence from Abraham's story. That's a really strong argument that Paul was bringing to the Judaizers and to the Galatians. Look, Abraham would agree with me. You're not made righteous by doing good works. You're made righteous by trusting in the promised son. Third and finally then, Paul moves in verses 10 to 14 to say, consider the evidence from specific Old Testament texts. Now Paul proceeds to give the Galatians a series of four Old Testament texts that testify to the fact that blessing with God does not come by works of the law, but by faith in the finished work of Christ. We'll work through these four pretty quickly. The first is from Deuteronomy 27, 26. It's presented here in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's the Deuteronomy 27 quote. Paul's saying, look, according to this text, the only way you can experience blessing by doing good works is if you perfectly do good works perpetually for your whole life. So saying, well, you know, I'm not really a bad person. I'm good. The first question you need to ask is, Right, what's your standard for measuring your goodness? 
because God's standard is perfect obedience perpetually. That's how you earn God's blessing. Remember how Jesus summarized the essence of the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Do that perfectly and never slip up once, you'll be all right. But here's the problem. No one can do that. And so if you cannot do all that's written in the book of the law, all of God's commands perfectly, all the time, and never slip up, if you can't do that, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. You're under God's curse, his displeasure, not under his blessing. So Paul's like, right, let's go down that route. You want to try to do obedience to get right with God? You got to be perfect. Otherwise, you're under God's curse. Would anyone say you're perfect? No. Therefore, trying to be right with God on the basis of works, it brings you under a curse. Second text that Paul now brings is from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, and it's presented in verse 11. No one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. This Old Testament text teaches that righteousness, true spiritual life, comes through faith. The law only brings death and condemnation. If you want true spiritual life, it must come from faith, trusting in God's provision of a promised son. It does not come from you trying to earn it yourself. That's what Paul says when he says the righteous shall live by faith. Life, spiritual life comes by faith. Third text, Leviticus 18, verse 5, presented in verse 12. The one who does them shall live by them. Once again, Paul's making it very clear the only way the law, doing good deeds, can bring spiritual life is if you do them perfectly and perpetually. This is a system based on works, not faith. We can't obey perfectly because of our moral corruption. Therefore, that system of obedience through being really, really good, you can't do it. You only get life if you do it perfectly. No one can do it perfectly. Fourth text then, finally. Deuteronomy 21, 23, presented in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. A tree is shorthand there for the wooden cross. This brings us right back to the message of Christ crucified that Paul had publicly proclaimed to the Galatians. Paul is citing Deuteronomy 21 here to help the Galatians see that on the tree, on the cross, Jesus bore our curse. And notice what Paul says here, he took the curse for us. Or sorry, not that he took the curse for us, he became a curse for us. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's really important for us to understand that on the cross, Jesus Christ was actually imputed our sin. He took the place of the guilty, the law-breaking sinner. He bore the curse of our law-breaking. He paid the penalty for our law-breaking. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul puts it another way. For our sake... God, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That is mysterious, but it is so powerful and profound. Christ was made to be sin, imputed with our sin, so that in him, we could be imputed with his righteousness. He takes the sin off us, he gives us the perfect righteousness. His perfect, perpetual obedience never slipped up once. Christ alone is righteous. And so in verse 14 of our passage, Paul explains the fruit of Jesus taking the curse for his people. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive, isn't this amazing? 
the promised spirit through faith. Now, what is the blessing of Abraham? There are so many ways we could answer that question, but I just want to answer it by taking us to Isaiah 41, verse 8, where God says, Abraham, my friend. Abraham was called the friend of God. What that teaches us is that Abraham's being counted righteous on the basis of his faith in the promised son brought him into a right relationship with God, where God the Father would have no anger, no enmity, no frown, but would say, Abraham, my friend. And so, for anyone who is in Christ, who has received God's promised blessing through the promised Son, in Christ, we are called God's friends. Jesus said this in John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants, instead I've called you friends. For everything I've learned from my Father, I've made known to you. So what is the promised blessing of Abraham that comes to us by faith in Christ? Well, it's grace, fellowship with God, no condemnation, no curse. All the blessings of the gospel, the promise of eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. And notice that in verse 14, this promised blessing is summarized by Paul as receiving the promised spirit. The promised spirit is the Holy Spirit coming to dwell within the people of God, bringing all the life of God into the soul of man, the love of God, fellowship with God, joy and satisfaction in God, a right relationship with God, all brought home to us by God's Spirit coming to live within us and bring all of the blessings of the Godhead right home into our hearts. That is the ultimate fulfillment of the promised blessing given to Abraham. Abraham was promised blessing. That blessing would come in the form of a promised son. And in that son, all nations would be blessed. And here we are today with all nations across this world finding blessing of righteousness, peace with God, friendship with God, not enmity with God, friendship with God, all through faith in the promised son. And so Paul builds his argument and he says, Christ alone is all you need, Galatians. Don't go back to trying to earn it. That's a waste of time. It'll bring you into slavery. Christ is all you need. So let's just wrap this all up now by asking just one question in closing. How do we get in on all of this? I started by asking a series of questions. How can we know that we are living our lives under the blessing of God and not under his frown? Well, what's our answer? Well, according to this passage, you've got to trust in God's provision of blessing through the promised Son, Christ alone. That's how you're made right with God. That's how you live under his blessing. That's how you know that all the tension that there would be because of your sin, it's all gone. In Jesus, the words that the Father pronounced over the Son at his baptism, you're my beloved Son and with you I'm well pleased. Those words are yours. In Christ, the Father says, you're my beloved Son, you're my beloved daughter. With you I'm well pleased. Just because you're in Christ. Before you've done any good, any bad, think of all your mess, all the debts. It doesn't matter. In Christ, with you, I'm pleased. I'm well pleased. That's incredible. How do you live in the goodness of that? Well, you preach that to yourself every day in prayer. Let me share very personally how I've lived in the goodness of that this week. 
Some of you know I was off uh, through this week having a rest after a busy few months, uh, especially in the lead up to Easter. On Thursday or Friday, I was running along the East Strand in uh, Portrush. And uh, there were really gray, kind of stormy, ominous clouds all around. And um, I was just chugging along, listening to music and trying to breathe and just keep going. And, and then the clouds all broke and there's this blue sky and the sun just shone. And just in a moment, I just felt just so full of the Spirit. And I was running along and I was saying, Lord, I have eyes to see this beautiful sea, this beautiful sun, this blue sky. I have the health to be able to run at the minute. And I am just experiencing your pleasure in this moment. And there's no condemnation against me. And I don't have to mess around with guilt or shame because I haven't read my Bible enough or I haven't prayed enough or I haven't shared the gospel enough. No, I don't have to worry about any of that right now. I can just chug along and know that I'm living under your blessing. Your smile's on me. I'm loving this moment. I'm enjoying creation. I'm feeling like I'm being restored and refreshed. And the best thing of all is that I know your blessing. Your blessing's on me. Not because of my works, but because of your son. And that was life to me. That was life. It doesn't get any better than that. But you don't have to be running along the strand with all that beautiful backdrop to enjoy that. You can just be sitting in your room alone praying. And you can just be taken in the spirit to the throne of grace and say, Lord, I know all's well between you and me because of your son. All's well. You don't want me to mess about with condemnation any longer. I am coming to enjoy my promised blessing in Christ. And you just live in the goodness of that. You know, so often we can get to that, into the habit where we count our complaints, all the things that aren't going well or all the things we're not happy with. We can just turn them over in our minds and quickly get a bit disgruntled. Well, I would encourage you to go out this morning and try to apply the words of that old little hymn. Remember the count your blessings? Name them one by one. And what is it? You'll see what God has done. Count your blessings. Count them one by one. I really want to encourage you to go out from here this morning. Just think, right, how do I know I'm living under God's blessing and not under his curse? In Christ. And then you this morning, just take time to count your in Christ blessings. Name them. One by one. If you need help, go to Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 15. Just read, blessed in the beloved with all of these wonderful things. Just think, eyes to see, ears to hear, food to eat, a roof over your head. But the best of all, no guilt, no condemnation. The blessing of God just on the basis of Christ. So how can I know I'm living with God's smile upon me rather than his frown? How can I know I'm under God's blessing and not under his displeasure? How can I know that in the end... When I stand before God, he'll accept me into heaven and not reject me and cast me away. Answer, I'm in Christ by faith. That's it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. In him, there is a treasure. And thank you that by grace, that treasure is ours. If there is anyone in my hearing this morning and they are not in Christ and they're still under the displeasure, the curse of God, I just pray that right now they would say, I want to receive Christ by faith to be brought out from under that cloud of displeasure and to be under those blue skies of grace with the favor of the Lord resting upon us. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to respond and stand uh, singing of the treasure that we have in Christ. Immortal honors rest on Jesus' head. Let's stand and sing together.
And now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.